that is your breath that is in our lungs. We pour out our praise to you. Great are you, Lord. We thank you, Father God, that you've given us the place to come as a church to, to sing these songs, uh, to, to sing our praises to you, to read your word. We thank you for your word, Father God. I pray that you speak to us powerfully through it this morning. I pray that you challenge our hearts and minds. I pray that we will leave this place with a different mindset, with a, an eagerness to serve you and an eagerness to take the message of the gospel out of this place. In your name, Amen. Uh, let me share with you the dream. This is the dream. Oh. So it's a bit fuzzy. My dream is not, it's not supposed to be that fuzzy. But this is the dream. To own a house with a living room that has a wood-burning fire in it. A place that I can come home to. Maybe it's fuzzy because it's just unlikely. But a place that I can come home to. Build a fire, sit next to it with a book, cup of tea, maybe a wee whiskey. That's the dream. I love fires. I always have loved fires. I used to go camping uh, with my friends around um, just the west coast of Scotland. Quite often we go for a day of walking or, or climbing or just travelling. End up somewhere up the west coast of Scotland. Put up a tent, build a fire and we just spend hours just sitting chatting, just focused on this fire thing. I could sit and watch fire burning for hours, I think. I find fires to be enthralling. They're comforting in their heat, uh, but they're also dangerous. They're two things at once, comforting, yet also dangerous and powerful. And as we know from the news in recent times, they can be catastrophic when they're out of control. We're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 3, uh, Exodus chapter 3, let's not go to Genesis, Exodus chapter 3 together. Um, we've been, as a church, we've been working through the book of Exodus last week, um, and they spoke to us of the prince of Egypt, and um, he kept us all really engaged with some family history, extensive history of the kings and pharaohs, and then after that, um, he challenged us to think about what God might be calling us out of, what he might be calling us into. Um, how can we be ready for when God calls us out of something or calls us into something? Uh, we heard that Moses was an adopted brother of the eventual Pharaoh. Um, but Moses then found himself at the age of 40, whilst having grown up in this palace and having all this power, uh, he then finds himself in the desert in Midian. Um, after he intervened as an Israelite, Moses was an Israelite, although he was brought up in Egypt, came across one day an Egyptian beating one of his own people, an Israelite, and killed, he intervened and killed that Egyptian. And when Pharaoh, his half-brother, found out about it, he planned to kill Moses, so Moses ran away. And when he, kept, when he got to Midian, this desert place, a dry, a, a, a difficult place to live, uh, he met, he stayed with a man called Ruel. Uh, also called Jethro. Um, and they encouraged us to consider what God might be calling us out of, what he might be calling us into, and how we can be ready for when God does that. Um, and I was encouraged a lot last week, particularly by uh, the news that Andy shared with us, that um, I don't really have to start, stop acting like a child or start acting like an adult until the age of 40. So I was really encouraged by that. Uh, as I'm sure 
well were. So last week we were looking uh, at Moses at the age of 40, and he starts off in this palace, he has this power, he has everything that he can need, uh, and he finds himself then in a desert uh, in Midian. So you can imagine the significant turn in lifestyle that Moses went through at the age of 40. And if you can't imagine that, I hope you're ready for the exciting things that are in store from next. Because in chapter 3, Moses is now 80 years old. Um, so we're going to read. We're going to read Exodus 3. Um, let's all hope that Moses is enjoying a nice cushy retirement at the age of 80. Um, but we're going to begin in chapter 2, from verse 23. And we'll read through uh, chapter 3. So Exodus 2, 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry went for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush was not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of a land, out of that land, into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. 
and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor, and any woman living in her house, for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. We're at the end of chapter 2 because it frames the story that we just read. Can we have the next slide, please? The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And he heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That covenant was a promise made to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob that their descendants would be God's people and that God would bless them and that he would be their God. We read that to begin with this morning because we're going to be looking at who God is. Exodus 3 tells us who God is and what God is like. And to begin with, we can see that God is compassionate. God heard and saw people in need, people in slavery, people being oppressed. God hears it and in his compassion he has moved to respond and rescue them. The first thing that we learn about God here is his compassion. That he cares. That he cares for the ones that he has created. God's concern is for the downtrodden. Something that's still true today. In chapter 3 of Exodus, for the children of Israel. Sadly, Moses' nice retirement, comfortable retirement plans doesn't seem to be happening. Instead, he is 80 years old and tending sheep in the blazing heat of the desert of Midian. Not only that, but he's about to be recruited to be the face of God's rescue campaign. God's people, the, one that he has, the ones that he has promised he will, will always be their God. They will always be his people. They need rescue from Pharaoh. This is a new Pharaoh, the Pharaoh that, that wanted to kill Moses had died, the new Pharaoh had come in. And Moses is going to be the face of God's rescue plan. And so God presents himself to Moses. And in what form does he meet Moses? As fire. The fire is such a good way for God to present himself to a human because humans can't see God. We can't look upon God. We can't even comprehend God. And so God makes himself something that we can comprehend. Why fire? Fire is comforting. It draws us in. It enthralls us. It comforts us. But we don't forget how ferocious and powerful fire can be. That's what God is like. This coming together of two things, two truths of God, 
that are almost opposites in our small, uncomprehending minds. God is caring and compassionate and gentle, and yet he is ferociously holy and powerful. Verse 2 tells us that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in flames of fire within a bush. Moses noticed that although it wasn't fire, the bush didn't burn up. I love how casually the, the Bible just often throws things in like this. The angel of the Lord appeared in flames of fire within a bush, and then Moses says, Oh, I may go and check out this strange sight. <laughs> it is possible that in the brutally hot desert of Midian, that perhaps he was used to seeing bushes on fire, but of course, they wouldn't generally, generally have had the angel of the Lord in the middle of them. The angel of the Lord has been a representation of God himself. This isn't an angel that we're reading here. This isn't an angel like Michael or Gabriel who appear at various times to bring messages of God. This is the angel of the Lord who appeared to Abraham. It's clear that this is God himself calling Moses to him for a conversation. The flames of fire, an indication that God himself is present in this strange situation within this bush. Later on in Exodus, as we're going to read as a church, the fire and the angel continue to be used to indicate God's own presence. This is God himself. Bit of a spoiler alert, pillar of fire leads the people of Israel through the desert once they escape from Egypt. This is God himself Moses in this burning bush and calls out to him, Moses, Moses. And right away God makes the next significant part of his character known. Do not come any closer, God said. Sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. God tells Moses, this is holy ground. To be holy means to be set apart, to be different. One theologian describes holiness as being unapproachable brightness. For the purposes of application, holiness Holiness is something that is pleasing to God because it has met his perfect standards. God says, take off your sandals, this is holy ground. In our story, it's not the place that Moses is standing that is holy or significant. It's not places that are holy or significant, it's the God who is there that is holy and significant. Moses wasn't standing on special sand in the desert. But God was in that place and so therefore it was a holy place. Wherever God is, is a holy place. And that's important to remember. Because God is holy, it's his nature, it's his character. Perfect, flawless. Holy means to be set apart, to be different. God is holy. I think we like to think of ourselves sometimes as being morally advanced. We know what we think is good and right. If only we were the ones that were in charge. As creator, God is the one who gets to decide what is right. God is the one that gets to decide what is just, what is acceptable. 
And God is, has declared that what is right is anything that has nothing to do with sin. Sin is an affront to God, the Bible tells us. That God cannot have any part of sin. And if we want to know what holiness is, then we can start by looking at what isn't holy. And that is us. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Moses was aware of how unholy he was. As humans, we are liars, we are selfish, we're self-seeking. We hurt one another, we are idolaters. You're sinful, the entire world is broken around us. We can all see that. And we are all broken because of sin. And then we look at God, and the Bible tells us that God is only good. Moses hid his face. Holiness means to be set apart, to be different. Moses was so aware of how different he was to God. Holiness is so wrapped up in the nature of God that he can't have anything to do with sin. The Bible tells us. So we have a problem as humans. A God who is so perfect, who is unapproachable, who is in unapproachable brightness, who is ferociously holy. And then we have humanity that is broken and sinful. That divide is too great. We can't reach God's standard, and so God has to be the one to find a way. And that's where Jesus came in. The Bible tells us that Jesus came down and that he was God. He was perfect and holy and lived a sinless life. And then he died. And when he died, he defeated the power of sin so that we could reach God's standard through Jesus. This picture of Moses turning his face away from a holy God because of Jesus, we don't have to turn our face away. Romans 5, 1-2 Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Because we are, because we are sinful, God had to provide a way for us to have peace with him. Sin makes us enemies of God, but Jesus gives us peace with God. Jesus makes us sons and daughters of God. And Moses was a sinful man. And so God made the ground in front of him holy so that Moses could come into his presence. God says, stand here in my presence. I have made this ground holy. I have made a way. Because of Jesus, we can have peace with God. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We can stand before him knowing that we have been healed of our sin and made holy ourselves. How good is that news? And so Moses can stand before the Lord and we know God because the God who is ferociously holy has made the ground, has made us holy through his compassion and grace. We can know God because of the holiness that was there. Moses had to respond or act in a way to this holiness. And God told him to take off his sandals. 
This is holy ground. Acknowledge the holiness that is here. Take off your sandals. And as Christians, we have been made holy. The Bible says that in Christ, we have been made holy. And so therefore, we have to act according to the holiness that's been given to us. Like Moses had to take off his sandals, we have to throw off the sin that entangles us. Because we have been made holy. It has been done for us, and yet there is an action for us to do. For Moses, there was an action, take off your sandals. For us as Christians, throw off the sin that entangles you. We have to act and live every single day in a way that reflects the holiness that has been given to us. And so Moses has been in the desert. He's been a shepherd, a dad, a son-in-law. And now he is in the presence of a ferociously holy God. And this God has said, stand here, I have made it holy so that you can be in my presence. And then God says in verse 7, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. Look at those two parts of God's character then just, just a couple of verses. He is ferociously holy, unapproachable brightness, powerful and yet also compassionate, caring, concerned for the downtrodden, like fire, powerful, ferocious, yet inviting and warm and comforting. And he says, I have come down to rescue them. In verse 10, he says, so now go, I am sending you, Moses. Moses' role in this great rescue is to be the mouthpiece, the messenger. Moses, remember the one who had fled Egypt, who had committed this terrible crime, who had given up his position and power in this country. Moses asked a question that, in all honesty, would be on my lips as well, in verse 11. Me? Who am I? Surely I'm the last person that you want for this job. The question, who am I, is a question that I think we ask ourselves a lot. Identity is a big deal in our world, for all of us individually, but in our societies as well. Who am I? Who am I? As Christians, Romans has just told us that we are holy ones. We are ones who stand before the living God. What if God said this to us? I am sending you, now go. Most likely we would reckon that God must have just got the wrong person. Did we find it really hard to believe the truth about our identity? We find it really hard to believe that we have been made right with God, that we've been justified, that we are holy ones. We look at ourselves and we think, I think God's got the wrong person. I'm not good enough. I haven't prayed enough. I don't know enough of the Bible. I have too many responsibilities, too many commitments. Who am I to do this job for God? I've got other things on. I've got a busy schedule. Also, Moses is an 80-year-old man. It seems like a pretty fair question to me. Who am I to go? I'm set in my ways. You don't have to be 80 to be set in your ways.
maybe Moses was thinking, I'm ready to retire. <coughs> maybe 30 years ago, maybe if I didn't have a family responsibility. <coughs> Imagine if we were in Moses' position a lot of Who am I to do God's work? And maybe we read these kind of stories in the Bible and think, thank goodness that that's not me. Thank goodness I don't have to do what Moses was being asked to do. Moses was being called to lead this great rescue. It was bold and it was audacious. Liberating hundreds of people who were in slavery. Thank goodness God isn't getting me involved in that. And yet, he is. For all of us today, as Christians, we are God's mouthpieces. We are messengers of God's great rescue plan. In Exodus 3, we read that the Israelites were in slavery in the, to the Egyptians. And that was true for hundreds of years for those people. And slavery is still an issue in our world today. It is brutal and it is horrible to witness. Human trafficking, human slavery still exists. And there's another kind of slavery in our world today. That's slavery to sin. And I'm not exaggerating to say that there are billions of people in our world who are in slavery to sin. Billions. And what the end of chapter 2 told us is that God is a God who cares about people. Cares about the suffering of people. God who cares about his creation and his created ones. That he is compassionate. And also that he is active. God didn't just create the world, set it spinning and then leave us to it. That God is at work in the world and he is moving and rescuing. And in every single one of our lives there are friends and family members, children, parents, co-workers who do not know God, who are blindly walking in darkness and are slaves to sin. You think Moses' task was a big one. If you're a Christian today, then your, your task is equally as daunting. Because we have a message of hope. Jesus gives this task to his followers and to us in Matthew 28. And this should be etched in our brains as Christians. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus' words, go and tell, go and make disciples, go share, go evangelize, go preach, go teach, go baptize, just go. Followers of Jesus, just go. Sadly for anyone that is hoping for a quiet Christian life that involves just sitting in a church for an hour a week, that's not Christian life. Christian life is go. And I would suggest that not doing that is disobedience. It would be like Moses turning his back on the burning bush and saying, nah, that's not for me. I've got retirement plans. The Christian life is to go. And so that's why we have Kayleys and men's walks and craft events and Friday Frenzy and FX. That's why we're getting behind the Graham tour. Because people need to hear this news people need to meet this God. God has a rescue plan for the world and we, all of us, are his mouthpieces. 
So who can we bring to these things, to these events? Who can we take to the tour? Who can we bring to this church? Sadly, retirement is not a biblical concept. I'm not looking forward to breaking that news to my dad. He's, he's been really looking forward to it for the last 20 years. But what stops us sharing the gospel? What stops us from bringing people to this church? Can you imagine if this place was filled with people that don't know Jesus so that they can meet God? Is there any reason at all why you haven't shared your faith with someone this year? I find it really difficult to share my faith and a big reason is that I think that it depends on me. I also think about how liked I am, how popular I am. When I build my life on my own identity, on how much people like me, when I care about my own image, I don't share the gospel. But when I build my life on God, when I build my identity on what the Bible tells me I am, I start to care for people. I start wanting to share the gospel. We also think that it's about how clever we are, how well we can convince. But our job isn't to save people from sin. It's simply to point them to the God and the Saviour that can. It's just to say, let me tell you about my God. Let me tell you why I go to church. Let me tell you about what Jesus has done for me. I imagine that Moses would gladly have waited for someone else to take the job from him. But here's the thing, there aren't better Christians to share the gospel. This isn't a job just for the elders of the church. This isn't a job for just people that have a gift. This is a job for every single one of us. Are you daunted yet? Are you asking, who am I God? Because I absolutely am. It's a terrifying prospect to be God's mouthpieces in our world. And here's the thing, God answers Moses in the same way he answers our questions of, of who am I. God responds, God responds with uh, not who you are Moses, who I am. In verse 12 God said, I will be with you. That's not just a nice tokenistic, I will be with you. It's not just, yeah don't worry about it, you've got this. I'll be there, it's fine. This is God, the God of creation, saying to Moses, I, God, will be with you. It's not about you, Moses. It's about who I am. Not you, but me. I am your God, and I am with you. God's point to Moses is, you're not going on your own. I'm coming. And Jesus said the same thing, to his followers and said the same thing to his church, to all of us, I am with you always. At school and at work, with your friends, your family, those people that don't know Jesus. When you're making disciples, I am with you. And why is that such a big deal? Because of who God is. Who is this God? Moses, the question that Moses foresaw being asked of him, when he got there in verse 13, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your father sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? 
what then shall I tell them? The people of Israel had spent hundreds of years in Egypt. Egypt was a polytheistic state. That just means that they had lots and lots of gods, nearly 2,000 altogether. They had gods for the sun, the moon, the water. They had gods for love and war and magic and boats, and they even had a god for the stomach. And so the Israelites, having lived in Egypt for so long, I'm sure that they would have known of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm sure they would have shared their stories and known their own history. <coughs> but they had lived in a land that had thousands of gods in inverted commas. Who is this God? What is his name? And in verse 14, God tells Moses his name. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am sent you. God presents for the first time his name, his personal name. In Hebrew, we read it like this. Ancient Hebrew didn't have vowels. So to make it more comprehensible to non-Hebrew writers, which I think is most of us, we use the term Yahweh or Jehovah or Yehovah. This is God's holy personal name. It's so holy in fact that the Hebrews by about 300 BC had stopped saying it altogether. That's how holy and how seriously they took this name. In your Bible you might notice that the name the Lord is sometimes all capitalized. When you see that you're saying this personal name of God, Yahweh. And his personal name describes him completely. When God says, I am, he is telling us that he is everything. If I met you for the first time, I have to explain who I am. I am Ryan. It doesn't really help, does it? I can tell you what my name means. It's a Celtic name. The name Ryan means little king. Does that help? <laughs> Probably not. There's a number of ways that doesn't apply. So you might need more that I am male, that I'm Scottish. That I'm a youth worker, that I'm a football fan, that I'm engaged. Do those things help you to understand me? A little bit, but not completely. There's a term, an acronym. It's something that perfectly is explained by its name. For example, an anteater is an acronym. There are some inactronyms that are more ironic than descriptive. For example, Frank Beard who was what was significant about Frank Beard? He was the only one who's easy to talk with that beard. That's an, an acronym. There's also um, a, a cardinal in the Catholic Church called Jayan Sin, who then was made a cardinal and was known as Cardinal Sin. <laughs> Peter Bowler, the cricketer who was primarily a batsman, Sam Foote, who's a comedian who sadly lost a leg in a horse riding accident in 1766. Went on to make jokes about legs and feet and foot. Uh, and my favourite, Robin <coughs> Mafood, president and CEO of Food for the Poor, Robin Mafood. <laughs> An acronym is something that is perfectly described by its name. Ryan isn't an Afternoon. All that God needs is his name to describe 
and explain who he is. I am. He is everything. Everything that we know. Everything that we can see around us is because of God. God has no beginning. He created our beginning. He has no end. He is not confined to our understanding. He is not bound by our comprehension. He is not able to be explained by our tiny minds. We think that we have explained God away. Our ability to think and comprehend and explain comes from God. Everything that we know is because of God. And before anything else, before anything else existed, God was. And when everything else is gone, God will be. He created and sustains all things. And if God stopped sustaining all of life, then we would be gone in an instant. Everything is because of him. And Moses says, what if they ask, what is his name? What will I say? God says, tell them I am has sent you. What this means is, I am the God, the only God that matters. In fact, the only God that one true God, all other gods are false, are by man. I am the one true God, holy, good, perfect, Alpha and Omega, first and last, I am. Wrapped up in that name of is wrapped up in that name is who God is. Think of the fire again. Powerful, ferocious, and at the same time, inviting, comforting. How we balance the truths of God in our minds when we think of him shapes our faith completely. Our God demands our worship, our time, our adoration. We must be God-fearing. We must always remember that he could wipe us out in an instant. And at the same time, that same God pours out grace on us. He forgives us. He draws us near to him. He delights in us. He delights in our prayers and our worship. He wants to know us and for us to know him. We should be face down on the floor in worship to God because of his holiness and splendor. At the very, very same time, we can be in his arms, calling him Abba Father. We deserve nothing and he gives us everything. Our God is a God of grace. He is holy, he is creator, he is love, he is justice, he is God. And so when this God, the only one true God, says, I am with you, that's a pretty powerful ally. And when this God decides that he's going to rescue you, you can be sure that it will happen. So when this God tells Moses that he's going to be his mouthpiece, his tool to bring the Israelites out of slavery, he's not saying to Moses, I'm hoping it's going to go well. I reckon you're the best shot we've got, Moses. He's saying, I am going to bring them out. It's going to happen. And I am going to use you to do it. God can say this because he knows. He's outside of our time. He's already seen forwards to the day when the people of Israel will worship him on this mountain. He's already in the place where he sees his people in the land of milk and honey. That's who this God is. One of many gods of Egypt. And this is this is the God that we can know personally. 
How does that work? In John 8, there's a conversation going on. A conversation going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. And it's getting heated because the Pharisees are getting wound up because Jesus is beginning to reveal who he is to them. And from verse 56 in John chapter 8, it says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad, Jesus said to the Pharisees. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you've seen Abraham. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Why did they pick up stones to stone him? Because that name that they had altogether stopped using by about 300 BC, the holy personal name of God, Jesus was now claiming as his own. Before Abraham was born, I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, Moses. I am has sent me. Salvation is in I am. God to the Israelites. Jesus to us today. I am has sent me. Jesus was the son of the living God. He was God himself. The claim infuriated the Pharisees. That claim is what we build our whole faith upon. Because Jesus is God, we can be saved. Through Jesus, who is God himself, we have been made holy. We can be at peace with our Creator. And our identity is holy ones. Because that is our identity, we have to live in a way that is fitting of our new identity. Just like Moses took off his sandals, because he was on holy ground. We have to live in a way that is fitting to our new identity. God probably won't meet you in a burning bush. I'm not saying that he can't or that he definitely won't, but I do think it's unlikely. Because we don't need a burning bush to meet with God. What we have instead is the opportunity to meet with God every day through prayer. Prayer is an amazing blessing. The Bible tells us that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. When you become a Christian, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit of the living God lives within you today. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So this God who appeared to Moses, this God who is creator and ruler of all things, this I am lives within you. words of Jesus again. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. At the very end of our passage in Exodus 3, It tells us why God was going to rescue him. So that his people could worship him. So that in that very place, his people could stand in the place where God made this promise to Moses. Said, on this place, you will stand in the people of Israel and worship me. Why was God going to rescue him? Because he cares about people 
because he's compassionate, because he loves justice. God is a rescuer and he does that because of his love. But he also does this so that people will worship him. So that people will declare that he is rescuer, that he is holy and that he is good. We are involved in God's rescue plan so that people can be saved from sin. But also so that more people can worship our God. Because our God is so deserving of worship. So that his mercy and grace can be proclaimed and celebrated more and more. And one day the Bible tells us that we will worship him in heaven with a great multitude. Our job, our task as Christians, for which God has said, I will be with you, is to ensure that as many people as we know will be included in that multitude one day in heaven by going, sharing, teaching, and making disciples. So before I pray, let's take a moment to think of who we know who we will spend time with this week. Let's ask God to give us an opportunity to share our faith with them. Let's think, who can we ask to the Graham tour? Who do we know in our lives that doesn't know Jesus? Who do we know that one day might become part of that multitude praising God in heaven? You are a holy, wonderful, powerful God. And at the same time, you have made yourself known to us. You are so undeserving of your grace and your love, Father God, and yet you pour out on us. We thank you, Father God, that we can call you Abba Father. I pray that we will remember who you are. We'll remember your holiness, your power, and at the same time remember that we can know you intimately. Father God, I pray that we don't just rest on our laurels. I pray that we don't just keep this to ourselves. We all know people, Father God, who don't know you. I pray that this week you will encourage us, remind us that you are with us, that we have I am on our side, that we are your mouthpieces, so that people can hear the good gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray this week that every single one of us will have a chance to make you known in our lives. We'll have a chance to share you with the people that we know, the people that we love. So that one day there will be a greater multitude praising you in heaven. Give us courage, Father God. Give us opportunities this week.